Let us pray together. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Janie left me this week. Just for a few days. I was all by myself with all of the children as she flew out to Colorado to attend a funeral. So don't worry, we all survived. It was touch and go there for a little bit, of course. The Burlesons fed us dinner one night. We had sleepovers. There was a little more screen time than I'd like to admit. But we're all here. Janie's trip was not as much fun. The funeral she was going to was from a, for a friend of ours who took his own life about three years ago. He left his widow with nine children, and they've held on to his ashes for these three years. And so they uh, wanted to have a burial, a military burial, uh, for him out in Colorado with some friends and family. That was where he was from. And the story is a heartbreaking story. It's full of sorrow and full of anger. It's full of confusion, a little more anger, and a lot more sorrow. Now, our friend has had a great amount of support, but as you can imagine, there's no amount of support that can make up for a loss quite like this. It leaves us all wondering how God could allow something like this to happen. How do we reconcile God's goodness and his love with such an experience of cruelty and of pain? Our Romans passage today might seem to pour a little salt in the wound. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, in the context of his argument, we might be able to appreciate this idea But when a family of 10 is burying the ashes of an 11th, how can we possibly imagine rejoicing in our suffering? What good is our reconciliation, our justification in God when there is so much suffering in the world? Well, according to our Romans text, the answer is that we have hope. The last couple of weeks, we've been in Paul's epistle to the Romans in an effort to explain what we mean when we talk about the gospel. While we have started in chapter three and only looked at a portion of chapter four, we've seen that Paul's ministry focus is how sinners or Paul's primary focus in that section is how sinners can be justified before a holy God. We've seen how God's righteousness, which is revealed in the law, has also been manifested apart from the law in Jesus Christ. And you may remember that last week we said that Abraham was justified by faith long before God ever gave the law. And the implication to summarize his point all through these first few chapters is that this same righteousness is available to everyone by faith. Our passage today shifts to a new focus, 
Having established the hopeless situation of mankind under the law and insisting on the necessity of faith to escape this situation, Paul now turns our attention from hopelessness to hope. But he does so by making the important point that we have been reconciled to God. So if you have your bulletin and you want to follow along, look in our Romans passage at the first couple of verses, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, I'm not sure that you have ever been at odds with someone. It's an awful feeling if you have had that feeling, especially if you're the one who was the offending one, the one who offended. One of the greatest uh, regrets that I have in my life is leaving First Baptist Church of Urbandale in Dallas, Texas. It wasn't so much that I left First Baptist Church of Urbandale, but the way that I left. As the youngest adult in this shrinking congregation, I was serving in the choir. I was attending both Sunday school and the Sunday services on Sunday morning, as well as in the evening, which was when we also practiced in the choir in which I sang. And to top all of that off, I had been serving on a pastor search committee. It was exhausting. And after we had already called one pastor who declined, After about a year, we were all very weary. And as a single person, there were no prospective wives at First Baptist Church of Urbandale, so I had resolved in my heart that I'd attend a megachurch in town uh, with a thriving single adult ministry as soon as possible. So I became a yes man, a yes man on the pastor search committee. And I agreed with the rest of the committee when we finally decide that brother so-and-so should be the next pastor. Praise God. But his first Sunday was my last. To use a term that I've been hearing a lot lately, I quiet quitted. If you've heard this term. Because I didn't have the guts to tell the church that I wanted to move on. Never do this. (laughs) Never do this. You may think that your presence at Mission St. James or any other church is not really that big of a deal, but I can assure you that it is. If you must move on from Mission St. James or anywhere, do it well. Please come talk to me and let other people know. Let us send you out with a blessing. Don't do what I did, because what happens is the Holy Spirit starts to nag you. And you either have to suppress your conscience or you've got to fess up. You've got to reconcile. And that's no fun. It's not worth it. So for me, I had to call one of the staff members of that church and apologize months later for quiet quitting. And after that, my conscience was finally clear, which is what we need with God. We are at odds with the Lord because our sin. We need to be reconciled to him. This has been Paul's point all along, really. 
We've been quiet quitters or even worse, intentional offenders. And because Christ shed blood, we now have peace with God, which is reconciliation language. Now, the word peace here is not this sort of 1960s idea of peace or a total lack of war and conflict. But it's the Hebrew idea of shalom. Shalom is a sort of an untainted and pure relationship with God, much like what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. Can you imagine walking in the cool of the day, having casual conversation with your creator? Well, this is shalom existed long before war and conflict and sin and fallenness. And it's God's desire for all of his creatures to live in shalom. That we might have peace with him and not be at odds and not just with him, but all of his creation. This was his intention, and it has been purchased for us by Jesus Christ. And Paul says, we now have access to grace in which, he, in which we stand. That is, the death and resurrection of Christ has resulted in our reconciliation with God. And we stand in a state of reconciliation. And the result is that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, I wish we had uh, so much more time to spend on this one phrase, partly because I don't quite fully understand it. But the other reason is because it is so rich. Hope is a word that we, I think, take for granted in this life, especially if we've grown up in the church and we've been around the church a lot. We've heard it so often that like the word gospel, we forget the gravity of it until we lose hope. Think about my friend who is widowed with nine children and imagine her struggle. When she once relished in the hope of a future with her husband and sending their children off to college and becoming grandparents together. And in a moment, those hopes are dashed. They're lost. This past Wednesday, we prayed for Brian Dinker that the Lord would alleviate his chronic suffering and pain. We had hoped for instant healing. He's still in pain. Although I will tell you, happily report, I saw him just a, a little while ago. He's I uh, had a new uh, physical therapist. It sounds like that's been very, very helpful. So we continue to pray for Brian. But you can fill your own blanks in here, can't you? How many of our hopes have been dashed in this life? So how can Paul talk about rejoicing in hope? Hasn't he ever experienced dashed hopes in this life? Well, the answer is, look at the object of hope. He's not talking about hope in growing old with a spouse or hope of relief from suffering in this life, but hope in the glory of God. So what in the world is he talking about? Well, I think he's still talking about shalom, this peace that we have, that harmony that Adam and Eve originally experienced in the garden. 
And you and I as broken, fallen creatures cannot fully enter into the glory of God. Yes, we've been justified, right? And yes, we have been reconciled, but we still fail. We are selfish and we stray like lost sheep. And the Christian life is one of constant repentance. Sin, repent, repeat. But there is one human being who can withhold and withstand the glory of God. In fact, he is forever in the presence of God's glory. And Paul will make this point later in the next chapter. But we have been so united to this man, Jesus Christ, that in him we are included or we are represented or even participate in this risen and ascended Christ's presence in God's glory. And no matter what we might suffer in this life, we are destined to fully experience God's glory. And this is what we are created for. To once again walk in the cool of the day with our creator. This is not a mere absence of suffering, but the full shalom of God. And not just that, but shalom with God, peace with God and his entire creation. So what good does this hope do us in this life? Look at verses three through five. Verse three says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now Paul is talking to my friend who mourns her husband and to Brian Dinker and to all of the rest of us. The same rejoicing we have in the hope of the glory of God can be now extended to our present sufferings. Why? Verse 3 again, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Now, this isn't to minimize our present sufferings as if to say that God just cares about us becoming more resilient in this life. Human resilience is not the chief end of mankind. In verses three through and, and four, Paul gives us a sequence of sanctification, doesn't he? But notice what is at the end of the sequence. First is suffering. That is our experience in this life. And then is endurance, then character. But he doesn't stop there. That's not the end. He ends with what? Hope. In other words, our suffering produces hope. No one hopes to continually suffer. Suffering's not the point. The utility of our suffering is that we might increase the assurance of what is promised to us in the gospel. That is, that we might continually long to experience God's glory as we are designed to experience it. In verse 5, he says, and hope does not put us to shame. This is biblical language. If you survey throughout all of the Psalms, you'll discover verses like Psalm 25.3 that says, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. This is a statement of hope. And it's often uttered in great times of shame and discipline. 
Under God's discipline, we find ourselves in a state of shame. But hope doesn't disappoint. Doesn't leave us there. In other words, suffering and shame will not have the final word. Why? It continues in verse 5, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, Paul will make this point later in chapter 6. It is through the sacrament of baptism that God's spirit is poured into our hearts. And in chapter 8, he will say this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you your mortal bodies life through his son, his spirit who dwells in you. The presence of God's spirit in your hearts is not only the result of our reconciliation to God, but it's also the evidence of that reconciliation. In verses 6 through 8, Paul makes the point that this reconciliation occurred while we were enemies of God. It may be conceivable, he says, that a human being would die for someone they love or someone that we might think is worthy. But to die for one's enemy is unheard of. It's unthinkable. And this is exactly what Christ Jesus did for us. And in the remainder of the passage, Paul reiterates that we have been reconciled to God by the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus, Jesus Christ. And despite the bleak beginnings of the book of Romans, the work of Christ on the cross now gives us cause to rejoice. Now, you may be here this evening with very little hope. This whole Christianity thing may either be very new to you or maybe you've heard it your entire life. And perhaps you suffered or maybe you've, you hear about widows with nine children and you deny that your hardships could ever compare with someone like hers. But the fact is, brothers and sisters, the suffering and disappointment and conflict are something that we all have in common. Even if to varying degrees. But we have to remember that even Jesus' hope to avoid suffering in this life was completely dashed. It was completely dashed. But this was not his ultimate hope. And it's not ours either. I'm going to read uh, this passage sort of in closing of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 14. Paul says there, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, he says, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, he says, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all pe people most to be pitied.
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Jesus is not a self-help God. We only have hope because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And Paul's gospel hinges on this fact. And without the resurrection of Christ, we're still under God's wrath, he says. We're still in need of reconciliation with our creator. And we have no hope. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And while our hopes in this life might be dashed over and over and over again, our ultimate hope is pure shalom with God. Friends, if the gospel has lost its saltiness, if it's lost its good newsness, if all this talk about justification and reconciliation seems too high and lofty, too theological to bother with, I ask you to reevaluate where you have placed your hope. Is it focused on what you could gain in this life? Is your hope in some accomplishment down the road you hope to, to gain? Is it your hope ultimately in a lack of suffering in this life? Now, I'm, not, I'm not saying that it's wrong to hope for a lack of suffering. This is what we pray for. But I am saying that if the resurrection of Christ does not fill you with ultimate hope, resulting in joy, even in the face of suffering, I'm not sure that we've grasped the gospel. This life is not the end, and the promise we have in the gospel is not a trouble-free life, but it is our own resurrected and eternal life. And this is the point of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the benefit of our reconciliation to God. This is our salvation. And this is what we mean when we talk about the gospel. Heavenly Father, in the midst of our suffering, Lord, I pray, we pray together that you would fill us with this hope. When we find ourselves down on our knees, when we find ourselves in hopeless situations, lift our countenance, Lord, by the spirit, the love that you have pulled, poured into our hearts by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lift our countenance. And though we may say, let this cup pass from us, let our ultimate hope be in the hope of the glory of God, that we might stand with Christ and in Christ in the final day at peace with you. And we pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.